Hello, and welcome to Fiduciary Talk, brought to you by FI360. I'm Blade Aiken, Executive Chairman of FI360, and joining me here today is John Faustino, Chief Product Officer and Strategist for FI360. So welcome, John. Thanks, Blaine. It's great to be here. So today we're going to look at the explosive growth in the use of collective investment trusts in retirement plans and what that means for retirement plan investment fiduciaries. So John, why don't you get our conversation started by giving us a brief history lesson about how CITs came into existence. Sure. So CITs have actually been around for quite some time. The first one was launched back in 1927, so almost 90 years ago, and it was launched through a state bank. CITs can be launched through state or federally chartered banks or trust companies. In the mid-30s, the first tax exemption status was granted for a small subset of CITs, and then in the mid-50s, the Federal Reserve and the IRS combined to create tax-exempt status for all CITs that are used within retirement plans. That tax-exempt status really spurned the growth of CITs within the defined benefit market. Up until 1962, at the federal level, CITs were overseen by the Federal Reserve, and then Congress in 1962 changed that oversight to the Office of the Controller of the Currency, who has that federal oversight today. In the early 80s, when 401k plans came to be, CITs were actually some of the first investments that were included in those plans. However, their lack of transparency and trading frequency made them less attractive to their mutual fund counterparts, so they didn't do quite as, quite as well early on. Very good. Well, as we look at what's happened lately, uh, CIT sales have really been skyrocketing. And just to quote some statistics here, uh, in a pensions and investments reported that CIT assets in DC plans increased to $1.5 trillion in 2014, and that was up from about uh, $900 billion in 2008. So they were looking at like a 68% increase. And then Callan Associates tracks uh, the CITs pretty closely, along with uh, other types of investment vehicles. But they found that uh, in just in 2015 here, last year, 70.8% of plans offered at least one CIT. If you compare that to 2014, it was only 60% then, and it's been tracking up and at a steepening incline since like 2011. I think there we were looking at about 44%, so big jump up. And then uh, with respect to Vanguard's uh, DC plan asset allocations, the CITs have grown now, I think, to 20% in 2015, and that's up from uh, only 6.7% in 2010. So it's been around a long time, but, man, they're really coming into their own right now, aren't they? What, what's behind that? They are, and those are three great data points, I would suggest, that show not only the depth but the breadth of, of CIT growth in DC plans. I think there's a, there's a handful of factors that you can point to that are triggering this growth, one of them is the demise of defined benefit plans. So again, CIT saw a lot of their growth within those defined benefit plans. So when they started becoming out of favor, CIT providers needed to adapt and survive, and they found the DC market as, as a place where they could do that. A little bit more nuanced, not only did the DB market overall have some, have some challenges that, that created some migrations from the CIT providers, but also former defined benefit plan overseers 
started to shift their attention to DC plans when their DB plans were taken away from them. Those DB plan overseers tended to be a bit more sophisticated with their investment knowledge and they certainly had good knowledge of CITs. So I think that's that's one area that you can point to as, uh, as driving some of that growth of CITs within DC plans. Additionally, you've got technology improvements. For example, CITs being added to the NSCC's FundServe platform in 2000, putting them on par with mutual funds, along with daily valuations being the norm for CITs now versus the quarterly valuations or monthly valuations that were the norm just 20 years ago. There have been transparency improvements as well, too. Morningstar has played a big role by actually creating a CIT database that mirrors their mutual fund database. There's over 4,100 share classes in that database today, and the existence of that data allows for fact sheets to be created for CITs, very similar to the ones that are used for mutual funds, as well as making that data available in the due diligence tools that advisors are looking at when they're making investment selections for plans. Microsites are available now for plan participants. You don't have to worry about your ticker being in the newspaper uh, in order to have visibility. So I think that, um, you know, while it may seem like a minor thing, that was a big issue 20 years ago and a, and a big strike against CIT's usage within DC plans. The fee advantages of CITs are fairly well known. And then also I think that um, CITs and QDIAs are kind of dovetailing. So we're seeing tremendous interest in both target date funds, target risk funds, as well as CITs. So you've got the low cost and the, and the great diversification. Um, and also the Department of Labor encouraging target date selections to be done more broadly. I think that's encouraged record keepers to open up their platforms a bit. Um, so the timing really could not be better for the CIT growth that we're seeing with all these factors coming to be. You know, you mentioned there about uh, over 4,100 of the uh, unit classes in the Morningstar database. Uh, I know you've got a lot of experience in how they, these uh, CITs have come into existence and, and what the composition really is. So could you add some flavor to that? Uh, whenever we talk about over 4,100 unit classes, are they... Is that number of different CITs going up? And sure, that's a that's a great question. And a unit class for a CIT is essentially the same as a share class for a mutual fund. So the increases in unit classes in the CIT universe at Morningstar is a function of both new funds being created, but also a function of new share classes, new unit classes being created for existing funds. So one of the characteristics of CITs that makes them different than mutual funds is that fees can be negotiated. So if there's an, an existing strategy in which a plan is interested, they can actually negotiate that fee. The CIT provider can issue a whole series of unit classes that reflect that lower fee with, with the same strategy. Gotcha. So CITs are, in many respects, like mutual funds in that they pool the investor assets uh, into a fund-like structure, but th there are some important differences, aren't there? Uh, maybe you could highlight on some of the differences that we find between the CITs and the mutual funds. Sure, I'll say I think one of the one of the biggest differences between CITs and mutual funds is that while CITs and mutual funds are both available for sale within qualified plans, CITs are not available for sale within 403b plans, and further, they're not available for sale to individual investors. 
So CITs can't be marketed, can't be sold to individual investors. So there's a much more restricted user base for CITs. Uh, as we mentioned earlier, CITs are regulated by the OCC and state bank regulators, depending on whether they're chartered at the federal or the state level. They're also regulated by the Department of Labor to the extent um, they've got retirement exposure, which, which they do. And then mutual funds are regulated by the SEC, and they've got that same DOL oversight as well, too, uh, when they're used in retirement plans. From a governance perspective, there's similarities with the mutual fund prospectus and the CIT declaration of trust. And there's oversight boards as well, too, uh, fund boards for the mutual funds, and the bank or trust company has a trustee board that oversees CIT. So there's some similarities on the governance side. Uh, there are some administrative considerations that show some differences between the two investment vehicles. CITs are not exchange traded while mutual funds are. Uh, we mentioned just a moment ago that the fees are negotiable for CITs and they're not with mutual funds. There is a more liberal investment set uh, in some regards in which CITs can invest um, and also some liquidity barriers relative to mutual funds. So mutual funds again while they're used institutionally sometimes really targeted for individual investors and those protections are in place. Um, in general, the, the mutual funds tend to be more regulated, more standardized. So now we're kind of focusing in here a bit on the CITs versus the mutual funds, uh, but we should really point out that the fiduciary obligation is going to be to look, look at all of the options to think about what we might uh, uh, want to use in a plan. The plan fiduciary should do that assessment. So. Uh, in addition to the CITs and the mutual funds, we'd be talking about potentially using ETFs or uh, even separately managed accounts, that sort of thing. So I, I guess the way I would think of it is that the due diligence process has at least three parts to it. First of all, uh, needing to always start with the client in mind, basically the participants and beneficiaries and, and what that participant pool looks like. and. Uh, so then we start to review uh, the plan governing documents as well to see if there's any restrictions or instructions regarding the types of vehicles that would be uh, appropriate for use. And so once then we kind of open up the, our thinking to these various types of investment vehicles, then we would look at those various options, the CITs or the mutual funds or exchange-traded funds or the separately managed accounts, and we do a features and benefits and obstacles comparison in order to get a handle on what directions we want to look. And then finally, conduct that investment due diligence uh, at a quantitative and a qualitative perspective to, uh, to do the appropriate comparisons. And, uh, and that probably even involves going back and taking a look at the prospectus with respect to um, something like a mutual fund uh, versus that uh, declaration of trust document in the case of the CITs because it may have some of those uh, uh, features that would be unique uh, to the individual CITs. So um, at this point, I think, John, it would be good to talk about how FI360 goes about now scoring these CIT vehicles because the data has become uh, more accessible, more workable for us to be actually able to do a fiduciary score on them, right? I think, yeah, following and following along in, in your comments, Blaine, about the standard practices, the standard processes that, that should be used from a due diligence perspective, the fact that a lot of those uh, checks 
are standard, should be standard, across mutual funds, ETFs, CITs. That's exactly how we approach things from a scoring perspective. So we actually did just start scoring CITs here at FI360, and we score CITs uh, as an overlay to the mutual fund universe. So I mentioned there's maybe 4,100 share classes. Um, in Morningstar's CIT database right now, a good number of those, about 30%, don't have a three-year track record. So based on that small sample size and also based on wanting an apples-to-apples -apples comparison, we score each of the CITs individually and then look hypothetically where they would have scored if they were a mutual fund and they, they get their score that way. Um, we, we line up the categories of the stable value funds with the respective mutual fund category. The one exception is stable value where there's a, a stable value category for CITs, not so for mutual funds, so we use short-term bonds for, for the comparison there. And you know, I think uh, we should point out that the uh, our scoring process is actually um, quite transparent and it is in fact posted out there uh, on the FI360 website, so we invite listeners to take a closer look at that. So well, we're just about out of time here, John. Uh, just looking ahead, you know, what does the future hold for CITs in your view? You know, from, from my perspective, I think we're going to continue to see penetration. So you mentioned over 70% of DC plans have CITs in them today, at least one CIT. That trend looks like it's going to continue. Um, and from a depth perspective as well, too, I think we're going to see that asset growth continue based on the focus on low fees and the simplicity of this structure. Very good. Well, we've certainly covered a lot of territory in our short time together on this podcast. Uh, for those who want to know more about the CIT, uh, CITs, there is a recording of a webinar that you and I just recently delivered uh, on this subject. So again, I'd invite our listeners to uh, visit the website and they will find it there. John, thank you for imparting your knowledge on this uh, subject with us today. Thank you for including me, Blake. It's great to have you.